All right. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, on either page 60 or 116. And uh, before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for the ways that you have been working in our lives to this point. We thank you for the blessings that you have given to us. We thank you for the rain that we have received recently. And God, we thank you for all the ways that you have uh, shown your care for us through, um, through times of struggle and trial. And Lord, we thank you for the promises we have that you will complete the work that you have begun. God, as we um, read your word this morning, as we hear it read and proclaimed, we pray that you would help us to receive it with gratitude. That you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to think, that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive, to be challenged, to be changed. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. there you go. Turning then to the New Testament reading, Romans chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 and 2 and then 9 through 21. This comes kind of a transition point in the book of Romans. Paul has been writing to the church in Rome and spent basically the first first eight chapters, but all the way up through chapter 11, um, saying this is how you have been separated from God through your own sin. And this is not something that's happened to a couple of people here and there or to the really bad people. This is something that's happened to all of us. But here's what God has done in Jesus Christ to bring you back to God. So after he goes through all that, then he begins chapter 12, Therefore, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And in verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, by now, I am guessing that uh, most of you, if not all of you, will be familiar with... um, the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Some of you may have already even participated in that yourselves. This is a challenge where people call, call each other out publicly, really, and uh, urging them to donate and also to dump a bucket of ice water on their heads, which has uh, made for lots of entertaining videos gone all around the country, maybe the world. But more than that, uh, and this is about a week or two old now, but they did uh, take a look at the money, the donations that have come in through this, and looking at a three-week period from last year, same time, three-week period last year, they had raised, ALS Association had raised $1.9 million dollars. more than I have, $1.9 million. This year, because of the Ice Bucket Challenge, same three-week period, they went from $1.9 million, $31.5 million in three weeks. $31.5 million, up from less than $2 million. That's a big change. That's a really big change. And what made the difference? The challenge. A year ago, people weren't being called out publicly. They weren't being challenged to do anything, and so they didn't. And this year, as people were being challenged, they did something, and it made a big difference. We have been talking the last uh, three weeks now about John chapter 6 and chapter 4 with this acronym known as REACH. And how to reach our friends, our neighbors, 
family members, how to reach people for Jesus. So by way of review, each letter stands for something. This acronym, again, created by my friend Matt Halstead, pastor in Oklahoma. The R of REACH stands for remember. That we are to remember that God saves people. That's what he does. That is his business. Not necessarily our business. So we don't, we don't think, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to save people. No, we can't do it. But God saves people. So remember, God saves people. But that's also an encouragement to us as we engage in evangelism because God saves people. That's what he does. The letter two, letter two, can you say that? Sure. The second letter is E, R-E, and that stands for engage. And so when we get our minds firmly around this idea that it's God who saves people, we remember that God saves people, we don't then disengage and say, well, let him take care of that then, and I won't do anything. But no, E is for engage. We need to be engaged. We saw this with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, where he didn't wait for her. He took initiative, and we were encouraged that week to take the initiative in, um, in evangelism, in talking to people about the good news of Jesus. doesn't necessarily mean only talking to people you've never talked to before. There may be some of that. But even to people that you've talked to before but have never had the conversation around the things of God, have never brought up Jesus in the conversation, don't wait for that to come up. Take the initiative. So be engaged in, uh, in the lives of others and engaged in those conversations of a spiritual nature. So remember that God saves people. Uh, engage, be engaged with those around you. A, last week, was for accept. And that is for accept people, who they are, where they are. Notice that Jesus knew things about this woman that would have given him good reason to not have anything to do with her. She was a Samaritan, first of all. Jewish people didn't have anything to do with Samaritans. Uh, She was a woman, and the Jewish men did not have anything to do with women publicly at all anyway. And then he also knew things about her, uh, her life when he talks about how she had been married five times before, but now she's not married and she's living with a guy. And so he knew these things that would make her uh, kind of lower down the social ladder, even as a Samaritan woman. And Jesus, as this Jewish rabbi who's supposed to be, you know, as the Pharisees would see it, someone who's supposed to stay morally pure by staying away from those sinners. And yet, Jesus knows this about her, and he still takes the initiative to talk to her. He accepts her for who she is, where she is, and, uh, and we were challenged ourselves to do the same with others, not to look at somebody and say, well, I would talk about Jesus with them, but they're just not the Jesus kind of person. You know, I'll wait till I find somebody I think is more likely to accept Jesus, and then I'll talk to them. But this guy, I don't know. And uh, on that, just... Real quick, I had um, two people in mind last week that then I forgot to share, so I'll just share it this week. 
C.S. Lewis was a man who wrote some of the most influential Christian works of the last century. And if you've never read anything by him, find something and read it. It's all good. He wrote Mere Christianity, The Screwtape Letters. He wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Space Trilogy, a million essays on miracles and everything else. Um, C.S. Lewis, before he became a Christian, was actually a devout atheist. He was a professor at Oxford. He was a major intellectual and an atheist. Did not believe that God existed and was pretty convinced of that. Now, I will tell you, that's the kind of person I think it would be easy to sort of write off and say, well, maybe God can do something with this other person who's more born and raised in the Bible Belt around cultural Christianity, and it's just a, it's just a short move to get them to accept Jesus. But this guy, the intellectual, atheist, college professor, I don't know. And yet, God reached him where he was and took him on from there. Another guy I've shared about before is uh, Benny Yusuf. This is a guy who planted, before he died, more than 100 churches in Kenya and Ethiopia. He was born Ethiopian as the son of a Muslim priest. Now, as you're considering talking to people about Jesus, is that the kind of person you're thinking, that's who who I want to go after? The son of a Muslim priest? Or is that somebody we'd say, I don't know, that's, that's a pretty big jump to make, to go from son of a Muslim priest, that's all you've known your whole life, to then accepting Jesus? I don't know. I think I'll go talk to somebody who's uh, maybe a little closer in. But that's not what we see, uh, not what we see Jesus doing. And in fact, as we see even with Benny, God was able to reach him where he was and, uh, and change him completely. So remember that God saves people. Engage with those around you. Spiritual conversations. Accept them for who they are, where they are. And then the fourth letter is letter C, which is for challenge. Challenge. It is one thing to accept people for where they are, but it's another to challenge them to go further. And we're going to take a look again at John chapter 4 and see how this works out in some ways with uh, Jesus and the woman at the well with three main challenges he gives her. Starting in, excuse me, John chapter 4, verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus accepts this woman, who she is, where she is. He reaches out to her, and yet she's faced with several challenges. The one is the challenge to face her own sinfulness, to face up. Jesus doesn't dance around the issue of the sin in her life. He names it clearly. This is how you are living, right out there in front of her, and she has to face it. That's a challenge. And that is one that we often, we don't want to do that. We certainly don't want anybody else to be calling us out on the sin in our lives. That's something, that's something we can just deal with privately on our own and rationalize it away so maybe we don't have to deal with it at all. Or just ignore it completely. But Jesus wants to save people. And what he wants to save them from is the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and even the presence of sin, eventually. And in order to do that, sin has to be dealt with. We have to understand the separation that there is between us and God. That yes, he loves us and accepts us who we are, where we are, but he also loves us too much to leave us that way. Maybe you've heard that before. And this is why we see, um, as we talked about the Ten Commandments being given to the people after God had already brought them out of slavery in Egypt. In other words, God doesn't give them these commands and say, do these things and you'll be perfect. And then, then I can be with you and we can be, uh, you can be my people. No, he saves them first when they have done nothing to deserve it. Grace comes first. That was the thing we talked about last week. Grace comes first. And yet, he still gives them these laws. He says, as my people, this is the way to live. This is the way of life. I have saved you from the slavery that you already experienced, but don't let yourself continue in the patterns of slavery that you have learned. Don't let yourself continue in the pattern of evil that you have inherited from Adam and Eve. It has to be faced. This is a tricky subject, by the way, because, as we said in the beginning sermon, letter R, remember that God saves, and so people say, well, if if God's the one that saves me, then I do nothing. And that's true. We do nothing to earn our salvation. And so anytime you start adding commands on there, well, now here's what you should do. Say, ah, no, 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 I'm not going to, if I start doing things, then it's going to be like I'm trying to earn my salvation. We know that's not right. It's a little tricky there. 
But then on the other hand, it sounds like you're saying, well, God saved you already in Jesus, and now the rest is up to you as far as how to be made holy and righteous before God. And that's not really it either. And so we want to say, no, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not by works, so no one can boast. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Kind of scrambled a little there, but those are the words. And uh, we say yes to all of that. But then what do we do with all the rest of the commands in the New Testament? We read Romans 12, 9 through 21. And I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of that was telling you what to do and how to live. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with those of low position. It's command after command after command after command. Maybe there's something we're supposed to do here. And that's, and that's actually it. Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. There is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we have to have a firm grasp on that before all else. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. But he didn't just save us from the penalty of sin. He's also saving us even currently from the power of sin in our lives. If we understand that sin leads to death, if we understand that sin is a separation from God, and if we understand that when we sin, we are not just hurting God, we're even hurting ourselves. then we see that there's, some, there's a good reason that God would not just want to save us from the penalty of sin and say, okay, just come to me and just keep asking for forgiveness for the same things over and over, but never try to change that. Because that would be on you. No. Because I'm going to work in you and through you and give you a desire to live differently. Then I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to put these things into practice. It's not going to happen all at once. You're not going to be perfect overnight. But these commands are in the New Testament because this is the way of life, the way of holiness, the way of righteousness. Be holy because I am holy, it says. Now, there's a great book by Kevin DeYoung called The Hole in Our Holiness. The Hole in Our Holiness, where he addresses this issue of people thinking, I don't need to challenge with this at all. But listen to one of the things he says. He says, even if you could enter heaven without holiness, even if you could enter heaven without holiness, what would you do? What joy would you feel there? What holy man or woman of God would you sit down with for fellowship? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their character is not your character. What they love, you do not love. If you dislike a holy God now, why would you want to be with him forever? 
If worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean and pure? You would not be happy there if you are not holy here. Or as Spurgeon said, put it, Sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. And this is what we see repeated again and again throughout the New Testament. Is that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, but that God is working in us and through us now to prepare us for what he has in store for us. To conform us to the image of Jesus. This is what we see when the woman says to Jesus, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. She tries to dodge the whole situation. She's confronted with her sin. She doesn't want to face that, especially not before this guy she doesn't know. And so she's like, yeah, okay, I get it. You're a prophet. That's how you know these things about me. Um, can we talk about something else? <laughs> let's, let's keep this off of me, and we'll deal with you know, general areas of disagreement between your people and my people. <laughs> That'll be at least easier to talk about. Have you ever felt that way? Where you're like, I would rather talk about something extremely controversial <laughs> than to talk about myself or anything personal going on with me. That's where she is. She says, I want to talk about something controversial because I am getting uncomfortable talking about me. The issue she brings up, she says, I, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And that was a conflict of the day. The Samaritan people said, okay, back in Deuteronomy 27, Moses had the people stand on two different mountains. And as they would read the blessings and the curses, the people on one mountain would respond uh, to the blessings and the other to the curses. And this is a way of testifying, you know, do these things and you will live. And the mountain where the blessings were pronounced, Mount Gerizim, that's where the Samaritans said, then that's where we should worship. If that's where the blessings of God were spoken, that's where we should worship. But the Jews said, no, Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem, that's where we should worship God. And so there was a conflict there. And she said, let's pick that conflict up again and rehash it. And Jesus says, a time is coming. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for the salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come where the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit, in spirit and in truth. Jesus says, you are concerned with the wrong thing. This is not an issue of location. It's not an issue of geography. It's an issue of the heart. So as much as you tried to deflect, didn't work. You wanted this to get off of you and off of your own life and off of your own heart and go on to some, well, let's talk geography for a bit, the controversy of geography. And Jesus said, well... It's still about your heart. And so Jesus is challenging her, the concept of worship, and what true worship is, and how it has less to do with where it takes place, and more to do with the matters of the heart, what's really going on. This is what you see, by the way, in Romans 12, which we read earlier, when, Jesus, or when Paul says to the church in Rome, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Did you notice there was no geography there? Paul doesn't say your true and proper worship is to go to Jerusalem and to make sacrifices at the temple. He doesn't say your true worship is to sing praise songs all day long. He doesn't say your true worship. None of the things that might immediately spring to mind, but he says what it is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. In other words, it's not about a particular time, a particular place. It's about a particular way of life. A people who have, call, who have been called to be holy and who are living their lives for the glory of God. Those who are concerned about growing in conformity with Jesus. And that is the last challenge that the woman receives. The challenge of Jesus himself. Once again, she tries to deflect. They've been talking about water. She says, yeah, that'd be great to have some some water. So he says, go call your husband and takes it right back to the issue of her heart. She's like, whoa, this is getting a little too close too fast. So she says, let's talk about the controversy of geography. And he says, well, that's also, we're going to get that back to your heart again. So She tries one more time. And she says, well, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll, he'll explain all this to us. So we don't need to talk about any of that now. And Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. As Colossians tells us, the exact representation of his being, as Hebrews tells us. And as says in Romans chapter 8, the whole goal of our salvation is we can be, that we should be conformed to the image of Jesus. And this woman is having to face that. Face to face with Jesus. With what holiness looks like in person. Listen to this. Again from The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin Young. He says, we see in Jesus the best, most practical, most human example of what it means to be holy. He is our model for love. He's our model for humility. Our model for facing temptation. Our model for steadfastness in the midst of suffering. And our model for obedience to the Father. We see all the virtues of holiness perfectly aligned in Christ. He was always gentle, but never soft. He was bold, but never brash. He was pure, but never prudish. He was full of mercy, but not at the expense of justice. He was full of truth, but not at the expense of grace. In everything, he was submissive to his heavenly Father, and he gave everything for his sheep. He obeyed his parents, kept the law of God, and forgave his enemies. He never lusted, never coveted, and never lied. In all that Jesus Christ did during his whole life, and especially as as his life came to an end, he loved God with his whole being and loved his neighbor as himself. And in this line, 
He says, if somewhere down the road you forget the Ten Commandments or can't recall any of the fruit of the Spirit, can't recall the fruit of the Spirit, or don't seem to remember any particular attributes of God, you can still remember what holiness is by simply remembering his name. The woman is challenged with Jesus. And by the way, while he is our model for all those things, he's so much more than just a model. Because if all he were was a model of somebody who lived the right way, and all we, had to do, and all we could do is just try and try and try to be like him, we would have nothing but a life of frustration to show for it. But he doesn't just show us the right way. He is the way and the truth and the life. And so when we see Jesus living differently than we live, and we try to live to be conformed more to his likeness and image and his way of life, we can do so not on our own strength, but through prayer and dependence on God's spirit to work in us to enable us to do things that we couldn't do before. Are we still going to fail and fall down? Yes. Are we still going to need to uh, pray for forgiveness again and again? Yes. But there should be the challenge of holiness always before us, not as something that will condemn us, but the challenge of holiness as the way of life, the way to life, real life. So how does the woman respond? That we'll find out next week. For this week, the question is, how do we respond? And how do those around us respond when we also are those who share the challenge, the challenge to confront our sin, the challenge of lives of worship, and the challenge of Jesus himself. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.